Chapter 9 Major Ringdahl met Dr. Rudolf Balkani in the dim hallway outside the psychiatrist's office. Balkani tried to get by him with only a mumbled greeting, but the major touched his arm and said, Wait a moment there. Fidgeting impatiently, Balkani waited. I understand you're now working with both Joan Hiyashi and Percy X, Doctor. Ringdahl regarded him acutely. How's it going? Not too well. Balkani frowned as he stroked his irregular beard. I think I may be pressing them too hard. Their reactions have become almost mechanical. The Major slapped Balkani on the back, an apparently friendly gesture, but Balkani felt the pressure of force beneath it. Keep at em. They'll crack sooner or later. After all, they're only human. When he finally managed to break free of his superior, Balkani found himself thoroughly depressed. The thing that annoyed him most seemed to be Ringdahl's insistence that he crack them. I want to cure them, not crack them, he thought to himself as he entered his office. He thought then about Joan Hiyashi, an interesting case, but not in accord with any of his previous findings. Her reaction to oblivion therapy was unique. He would have to write an entire new chapter in his thesis on the new psychoanalysis, all because of her. Perhaps, he reflected, I'll have to revise my entire theory. What a painful thought. A life's work down the drain, just because of one exception. And yet, as he well knew, a single inordinate exception such as this did not prove the rule. It broke the rule. At this point, he had completed half of the crucial last chapter. He could not finish it until he had closed the Joan Hiyashi case, one way or the other. Perhaps. He mused. I'll honor her by naming a mental illness after her. The Hiyashi Complex. No, that was perhaps too ambitious. The Hiyashi Syndrome. That would be better. Closing the door of his office after him, he seated himself at the foot of his analyst's couch and glared sightlessly at the rather tarnished bust of Sigmund Freud looming on top of his bookcase. Quite a frowning father figure, aren't you? He thought. Joan Hiyashi was late. What kind of idiots did they have for guards anyway? They were probably making time with her this very moment, the animals, pawing her with their sweaty soldier hands. He got irritably to his feet, paced back and forth a few times, then sat down again and reached for his pipe. Footsteps in the hall. He leaped back up to his feet, spilling tobacco from his pouch. This he did not notice, because the door had begun to open, and there she stood. Hello, doctor. She entered the office. Behind her, the guard shut the door. As on every other occasion of late, she seemed cool and remote, even indifferent. What do we do today? She asked as she slipped noiselessly into a chair facing him. The tank, Balkani said. Or some multiphasic profile tests. Or perhaps just a little chat, huh? We ought to get to know each other better. Anything you say, doctor? If only she would react to him emotionally in some way but she never seemed even to hate him, let alone show any affection. He said, for a trial start, Why don't you call me Rudolph? Anything you say, Rudolph, that's better. But it was not better. As with every previous response, it had an empty, listless quality to it. Perhaps a little dip in the sensory withdrawal tank would be nice today? He decided. What do you think about that? Anything you say, Rudolph. She began dutifully to undress. Balkani watched his palms sweating. In a moment, she stood nude before him, waiting for his next command. 
He picked up the diving coveralls from their hook on the wall and walked hesitantly up to her. Can I help you? He said hoarsely. Anything you say, Rudolph. With trembling fingers, he helped her into the garment. Then, just before he zipped her up the back, he kissed the nape of her neck, quickly and furtively. Then he led her by the hand to the tank chamber. As the two robots lowered her into the water, he looked again at the strangely mechanical patterns made by her encephalic waves on the polygraph. So unusual, unique in fact, unlike anything he had ever come across before. And he did not like it, not at all. But there seemed to be nothing he could do about it. For reasons which he did not comprehend, the situation had gotten out of hand. Paul Rivers guided the ionocraft so low that the ancient and obsolete telephone wires still used in the Bale of Tennessee shot past above him. There's no alarm out for us, he reflected. But still, as we near the mountains, it's best that we don't attract any undue attention from WIC radar stations. The lights on the vehicle had been turned off, except for the infrared headlights. Paul wore conversion goggles so that he could get a look at the countryside for some distance ahead, without being seen. A low overcast hung everywhere. It depressed him. Because of the low altitude, he had slowed to less than a 100 miles an hour, feeling little danger of pursuit. It therefore came as a very disagreeable surprise when the radio, which had been tuned to the local police band, suddenly sprang to life long enough to announce curtly, Unidentified ionocraft in Sector C, heading south without lights. This is Police Central. Repeat. Unidentified ionocraft in Sector C. Move to intercept. Maybe someone trying to join the need parts. Get out the laser rifles, Paul said quietly. Percy X and Ed Newcomb moved quickly to obey. Joan continued to stare out into the darkness, seemingly indifferent to the danger. He lifted the craft to a slightly higher altitude and increased the speed to 150, then 200 miles an hour yet he had it still only a little above treetop level. It seemed wiser to him to hug the earth as long as he knew that the police did not have a positive fix on him. Glancing at his own radar, he saw that two fast crafts hung behind and above him, catching up fast. They'll probably try to take us alive to begin with, he decided. Two police vehicles approaching from the rear, he informed Percy X. I can see they're running lights, the Neegpart leader said lifting his laser rifle to his shoulder as he stood beside the open hatch, coils of wind flapping his clothes. Think you can nail both of them before they have a chance to launch anything at us? Paul asked. Sure. Percy X said and fired two short bursts. Behind them, one of the police crafts exploded. The other zigzagged a moment, then plunged earthward like a streamlined brick and buried itself in a hillside. Paul changed course, changed course again then increased speed to a dangerous 300 miles per hour. Trees now whipped past, too fast to dodge if he should come upon a really tall one. Now the radio blurted out, Unidentified ionocraft, definitely enemy. Just shot down two of our patrol crafts. All crafts converge on Sector G. Shoot to kill. There's one nice aspect to consider, Paul said to himself. At least it can't get any worse. But he was wrong. At that instant, out of the darkness ahead, appeared a high-tension power line. At the speed which he was traveling, Paul did not have a chance to react to, let alone dodge, the oncoming obstacle. 
He could only hang on as the ionocraft struck the wires with an impact that smashed his head forward against the wheel, almost knocking him unconscious. But, through his mentation that had become dazed and confused, the habit patterns imprinted in his subconscious by years of flying high-velocity ionocrafts under all sorts of conditions remained functioning. He fought frantically to regain control as the vehicle spun wildly and lost altitude. Another crash shuddered through him as the ship struck the top of a sandy hill and bounced once again into the air. Now, miraculously, Paul managed to get the ship under control and, still swerving erratically, to regain a little altitude. He glanced briefly at Joan, Ed, and Percy X. All seemed stunned, perhaps unconscious. The iron grids of the ship had suffered severe damage and threatened to break off at any moment. The ship appeared to be losing power. He realized with reluctance that he would be able to keep it in the air only a few minutes more. I guess. He thought bitterly. We'll have to get out and walk. Just then, the radio spewed forth another message. Unidentified ionocraft surrounded. Close in. All patrol craft. And shoot on sight. It has become time, said the timekeeper, to key into the common mind broadcast from the home world, sir. The nervous little creech gestured toward the surge gate amplifier in the corner of the administrator's office. Huh? muttered Mechus in response. Sir, this is the third time this month that you have failed to join the fusion. How will you know what is happening back home? I have more important matters to attend to. Anyhow, I know what is occurring back home. My enemies are enjoying themselves at my expense. Why should I plug in just to empathize in their gloating? The oracle chimed in gloomily. It is not from the home world that the darkness approaches. The timekeeper slunk off in silence and Mechus returned to his more important matters. This consisted of a reading of the entire published works of the brilliant but verbose Terence psychiatrist, Dr. Rudolf Balkani, Mechus had secured microfilm copies of all the books available through the channels of the Bureau of Cultural Control and had devoted virtually his complete attention to them. Never before had he encountered a thinker that so obsessed him. The very first sentence of the initial book had passed through him like a shot. The number of men on this planet is great but finite. The number of potential men within me is infinite. I am... Therefore, greater than the entire human race. This thought would never have occurred to a being accustomed to the telepathic melting together of the great common, and yet there was something about it, a certain incredible yet plausible egotism, a fantastic daring that seemed to speak to a deep, hitherto untouched part of Mechus's spiritual mind. It seemed somehow to explain the painful state of affairs existing between himself and the other members of the Ganymedian ruling class. They all, every last one, he thought, are against me. Yet I know I am right. That in fact I've been right all along. How can such a condition occur unless Balkani is correct? Unless one being really can be greater than the entire race from which it comes. Balkani's method struck him as outrageous. Instead of performing systemic experiments cautiously moving the boundary of knowledge forward inch by inch, Balkani simply looked within his own unique mind and described what he saw, brushing aside whole schools of psychiatry with a single snide remark. 
making not even a feeble attempt at politeness, let alone scientific fairness. Yet his theories produced results. Balkani, the master, lurched drunkenly into the unknown, carelessly tossing off dogmatic statements as if they were proven facts simply because they seemed to him, intuitively, to be true. Then others could follow behind him, picking up his ideas and testing them scientifically, and produce miracles. A method of training, latent telepathic ability that really worked. A type of psychotherapy that seemed to be a brutal, all-out attack on the patient's ego, yet which cured in weeks supposedly impossible to cure mental illnesses such as drug addiction and far-advanced schizophrenia. An electromagnetic theory of mind function that opened the way for partial or complete control of the mind by electromagnetic fields. A way of measuring the presence of synchronicity generated by schizophrenics. An a-causal force which, by altering consistently the patterns of probability, made the objective world appear to collaborate with the psychotic in the creation of the half-real world in which his worst fears would, against improbable odds, come true. Was it these results that impressed Mekis, or was it the example of Balkani the man? The latter. Mekis had begun to see himself in the Terran psychiatrist, feeling at one with this man who had set himself up in opposition to his entire race. It would be interesting, Mekis mused, if I turned into a Ganymedian Dr. Balkani. Glancing up for a moment, he discovered that one of his WIC secretaries had been trying, for almost a minute now, to attract his attention. Gus Winnesgard is here, Mr. Administrator, the secretary declared. I haven't time to see him. What does he want? Did he say? He wishes more fighting units in his Neeg hunt in the mountains. He claims he can clean out the whole lot of them if he just has a little Ganny first-line hardware. He did not want to think about the Neegs. He was struggling to understand a particularly fine point in the illogical logic of Dr. Balkani's centerpoint, action at a distance, and ESP. Aloud, he said, Give him what he wants. Keep an eye on him, though. And don't bother me about it. But that is all. Mekis flicked the switch with his tongue, the switch that turned the microfilm viewer to the next frame. With a shrug, the wick departed. Mekis instantly forgot the exchange as he buried himself once again in the twilight world of centerpoint paraphysics. When Gus Swenisgard heard the administrator's decision, as relayed to him by the WIC secretary, he said rapidly, Mecca says I can get anything I want. That's correct, the secretary said. First off, Gus said with an expansive smile, I'd like all the Ganny fighting units in the bail transferred to my command. Then, he pondered a moment dreamily, I'd like to do a little reorganization in the governmental structure. Who do you think you are? The WIC secretary said dryly. Gus chuckled, slapping the somewhat annoyed secretary on the back. I'm the kingfish around here now, sir. That's who I am. He then left the Ganny HQ building, whistling contentedly. He knew exactly what he had, for reasons unknown to him, achieved. There, up ahead, Paul Rivers made out a highway and on the highway a huge trailer truck zoomed through the night. He hauled back gently on the controls of the ionocraft and thought, Why not? The craft responded sluggishly, 
but he found himself swinging down behind the truck, approaching it, as he intended, from the rear. Now, he said to himself, and cut the grids. On the last dying power, he sailed in through the open upper half of the trailer and settled on its cargo with a crash. The driver spun around, startled, and gazed back through his cab window as Paul took aim with a very mean-looking laser rifle. Keep driving, Paul said over the roar of the truck engine. You're the boss, man, the driver said with a sheepish grin. He turned his eyes back on the road. He must think, Paul realized, that we're hijackers. The first chance he gets, he'll try to signal the law. And the law, of course, would be here in a second. The driver, however, appeared to be a Negro. Percy, Paul Rivers said urgently. Pull yourself together and tell the driver who we are. Quick. Beside him, Percy blinked, then read Paul's mind and the driver's with two swift probes, then yelled at the driver. Hey, Dad, you know who I am? The driver, studying his rearview mirror, said, Yeah, I know who you are. I do believe you're Percy X. I would have joined you in the hills except I got a wife and kids to think about. I gotta stick around and keep them from killing each other. He laughed, mockingly. You going anywhere near Gus Swinnesgard's plantation? Paul asked. We're headed. He thought hopefully. In the right direction. We're going through the northern end. The driver answered. Fine. Percy X said with palpable relief. From there I'll be able to get back to my men on my own. To Paul he said. Are you coming with me? Paul glanced at Joan Hiyashi and said. No. Ed and I will be parting company with you there. You want to take Joan with you? She'll be safer with me. Nobody is safe nowhere these days. Percy X said bitingly. Do you want her to stay the way Balkani has made her? After a pause, Percy X said, You'll keep me posted on how she's doing? With that amplifier of yours? Just then, an ionocraft whooshed overhead, then another, and another. Where'd they go? Demanded a voice on the police radio. They vanished. Another radio voice crackled out with resignation. The Neeks have those new weapons. I heard about it on TV. They can make themselves invisible. Paul Rivers could not resist smiling faintly when he heard one of the police mutter under his breath. Never can find a need when you really want one.